poetry, ADHD, and autism? I never would have guessed. So you are listening to Finding Your Brilliance, Episode 7, and I'm your host, Catherine Kui. Today, I'm talking with Chris Martin, who is the author of The Falling Down Dance, winner of the 2016 Minnesota Independent Booksellers Choice Award, and the co-founder of Unrestricted Interest. I met Chris through his talented wife, Mary Austin Speaker, because she designed my book cover for Raising Will. At one point when Mary was reading Raising Will, and we were talking in the loft as usual about our book design, and she said, you know, you, you've got to meet my husband, Chris. Um, you guys have a lot in common. And so it happened. She commented in particular about our interest in ADHD and autism and the neurodivergent world. And so here you are, Chris, and I'm so happy to have you today. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. Can you talk with me a little bit about, I mean, for listeners, before I delve into your interest in autism and ADHD and all of that and how that happened, what I'd love to have you talk about is poetry, how that happened for you. Yeah. um, I think they're linked. And I think um, for me, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because I'm writing this book uh, right now about poetry and autism. And I just had to write the introduction kind of foregrounding myself Mm -hmm. and my own neurodivergence. And um, it struck me when I was a kid, people would always say, Oh, Christopher, he's so sensitive. And I wasn't overly like emotive or moody or anything. Um, And I could tell that it was at once a compliment, like that there was a gift that I had some, something about being sensitive, but then also it was like a look of grave concern. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Oh no, the world is going to tear you apart. Um, And so that's like, in many ways, like the first label I feel like I had was sensitive. And then later, uh, you know, as a senior in high school, pretty late, I got diagnosed with ADHD. In that conversation with um, the doctor who diagnosed me, he said, um, you know, most people, for better or worse, just kind of travel down a pretty solid road. And for someone like yourself, that road has all kinds of potholes and broken bridges and all kinds of things. And what you have done often is to kind of improvisationally build some kind of like new way to get forward. And I immediately, cause that was right at the time where I started adopting a label that I would always come to hold at afterwards, a poet, which I feel like is also like a synonym for sensitive in some ways, but um, that that those were linked, that my interest in language came from a desire to find different ways to say things. And that in part, it was probably sparked by um, what I had to do as someone 
with ADHD to kind of navigate the world is mm-hmm. that I couldn't just go down the regular roads because they didn't really work for me. I had to figure out like, what is like the most interesting way I could get from here to there <laughs> to keep me interested and to like do it a little differently. I guess that is one of the things about talking with someone who is a poet, a writer, that type of person is that the conversations are different yeah. than your everyday conversation. And do you mind talking a little about how you came to the path of how did that happen your senior year that you got diagnosed? Well, interestingly enough, and this has been a cool thing to kind of like fully take in finally um, in writing that introduction, you know, I was raised by two very successful neurodivergent parents. Mm-hmm. My dad was always very like uh, upfront about his dyslexia and the the troubles he had in school growing up, but he persevered through them, found his own ways and, you know, became a successful lawyer. And my mom didn't have any kind of diagnosis as we were growing up, but she was, she's very different. She's also extremely sensitive and incredibly creative. So she actually got diagnosed with ADHD when I was in high school. So adult ADHD. And uh, she's like, I really think you should get tested. And I'm like, what good would that do now? I was pretty frustrated by the whole idea. I was like, I have, and of course, back then, you know, we're talking about in the mid nineties, there wasn't any positive associations, ADHD, right? Or it wasn't a word like neurodivergent. Um, So I was a little frustrated, but I'm glad that she encouraged me in that direction because not only did in this conversation with the doctor, I got this one little piece that helped kind of like link it to my writing. So it gave me a positive association for it. But I think that it made my path towards working with neurodivergent students more legible to me. Yeah. Well, having the personal experience. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it has deepened my work so tremendously having a child with ADHD. And so, okay, so your mom got diagnosed, then you did, and mm-hmm. you happen to have this wonderful, I would say it seems like a pretty wonderful doctor who yeah. who you worked with. And then did you buy in and say, okay, it looks like I do have ADHD? Or were you someone who was kind of like, I don't know? Yeah, I didn't. I feel like I just kind of sidestepped it. And mm-hmm. because I was becoming a poet, I'm like, you know, that's my label. I don't, okay. I'm not going to embrace ADHD. And it was only until later that after working with students that I really did start to embrace it in a way. And it was partially because, you know, I felt this incredible kinship with them. Okay. And I wanted to, um, I realized that it was an opportunity for me to kind of advocate in embracing it myself. I could say, one, like, I, I know what it's like you know, that's me too. And also give some students that, you know, struggled a little more mightily than I did, um, a kind of vision of like what, where they could head towards or yeah. Yeah. Give people hope. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so you went down the path of you were comfortable being a poet and you've been in that world for years now Mm -hmm. and you met, you became a co-founder of Unrestricted Interest. And I'm curious, can you talk about how that happened? Yeah. So I, you know, I started, um, I wanted to teach, but again, I always wanted to do things a little differently. And so, whereas all my peers were 
applying to MFA programs and professionalizing towards academia. But I'd read this book by this poet, Ron Padgett, about teaching in schools with younger kids. And I just kind of fell in love with the idea. And so I said, okay, well, that's, you know, maybe I'll try teaching that way. And I'd always, I'd always been extremely fond of, of the creativity and imagination of kids. And so I got a job in an after-school program in South Brooklyn and it was at a place that was at, this is literally the name, the Edward B. Shallow Middle School. And, uh, <laughs> Edward B. Shallow? Shallow? Edward B. Shallow. Um, and uh, in Bensonhurst. And I, um, at first, I was like the utility player there. So I was like, I originally was hired to create like a moving library for the, sc- for the oh. after school program. And then I was the girls basketball coach. And then I taught <laughs> comic book design um, and a rap class. But in oh. the end, oh, uh, my. the most kind of transformative work for me uh, was in the interim between all these things, the director would send me these students who weren't fitting in. And at the time, I didn't know anything about autism past Rain Man. That was like my okay. own like reference point. And it would take me a while to actually even understand that these kids I was working with were on the spectrum. But there was one student who was really having a hard time fitting in. And that was because he had this, what you know we call diagnostically a restricted interest. Right. Um, and it was like the most restricted I'd ever seen. Um, and it was just the original Planet of the Apes movie. That's okay. all he wanted to talk about. But I was like, great, let's write a poem. Like, you know this thing backwards and forwards, you love it. Like, this is perfect for me. And it's an example of what I think about as vertical thinking. So instead of, like, thinking about, like, a story or the way things connect, yeah. kind of, like, horizontally, it's more about let's stick with this one thing. Let's just, like, think about everything about this one thing within all its depth and richness. And so I ended up helping him write this epic poem. You know, it took three weeks. It was, like you know, seven pages long, the Planet of the Apes poem. And it was just like a revelation, both for me, because I thought it was just artistically so awesome, but then for his his teachers. um, And when we showed it to him, I expected them to be overjoyed, but they were actually crestfallen when they saw it because they realized how much they had failed him. They didn't see in his potential and his imagination and his understanding of like even human emotions. So... It was just this one little experience that it gave me a taste of something. And then I ended up kind of lucking into a job in a progressive special needs organization where I had, it was an amazing place where I got free reign to kind of just develop my own pedagogy about everything. And I had recourse to a learning specialist, but I wasn't being kind of told what to do necessarily. Mm -hmm. And then, so I just got to have that kind of revelation over and over again with different students for Mm -hmm. almost 10 years at yeah. this place. And then when I moved to Minnesota, we were going to open up a satellite office for this organization. And I, but I had some misgivings. The The guy that I was, was going to help me do it, Brian Laidlaw, who's a poet and a singer songwriter, uh, an educator. He, he's like, I get a feeling like you don't want to do this. Mm. And I was like, I don't think I do. Oh, he's wow. like, well, what do you want to do? I said, I just want to teach poetry to kids with autism. And he said, let's wow. do that. And I was like, okay, let's do that. <laughs> and wow. so we, that was, you know, in that meeting, we decided to start unrestricted interest. And, um, and, and it took a while to figure out what exactly unrestricted interest was or would be or could do. But 
yeah, five years in, it's pretty remarkable all the things that we've accomplished. And I mention your program when I am at work working with kids, and I'm getting goosebumps thinking about what you're saying because a I am shifting what I'm passionate about. I am moving from wanting to do evaluations with kids to really, uh, I want to advocate for kids in a different way. I want to uh, help really kids shine Mm -hmm. and help these kids who every day when I'm in my office, they just blow me away and I want to be able to teach the things that I've learned. So I, I very much relate to what you're saying. The the thing that I'm hearing you talk about though is how, oh, oh, I know what I was saying. So the thing is, is I'll mention your program to people yeah. and then I'll say, this is this really cool guy who's doing poetry with kids that I think your child may benefit from, but I want it to come from you because I'm going to have parents listen to this. And I wonder, can you talk about how parents can reach you and what are some of the things that have happened as a result of your program that you're excited about? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think our passions are really similar and your book is such a good example, you know, and it's so obviously such a personal example with Will of recognizing this brilliance and then Mm -hmm. helping him find his way like to deepen that and live inside of it. Um, And I feel like that's what I see in my students um, and that I want, that's my ultimate goal is just to figure out, and it's, you know, it goes back to that transforming the restricted interest into the unrestricted interest. And from this idea of like a perseverative obsession to like a passion, Um, how do we like give students the tools to, to dive into their passions and then be able to connect to the world through them rather than have that like separate them um, or isolate Mm -hmm. them. And for me, luckily, I mean, it's, to me, it feels like this amazing, you know, kismet that for a lot of my students, it is poetry. And that that is like their kind of native language and way to communicate and advocate and express themselves. Um, Yeah, I mean, we're based here in Minneapolis. Uh, You can find us through our website, unrestrictedinterest.com. But we work with students all over the United States and now Canada as well. And uh, one of the immense joys for me has been working with um, the whole range of students with autism. So I've worked with students that would be considered, you know, high functioning in quotes, and then also worked with um, uh, a number of non-speaking autists and who I have found have an, like a special uh, passion for poetic language. And so that's been some of the more transformative things I've seen have come in that realm one of our students, uh, Megana Januru, she was a, a young woman I worked with at the South Education Center in Richfield. She had been just communicating basic needs on her iPad via icons, like, you know, on her iPad bathroom, like, oh, wow. juice. And the first time we worked together, she wrote a single word, but it was A W E D. I was doing this kind of like odd. Um, basic she had been watching a video of like a disney parade and so i apologize i was like you know i'm sure you have more sophisticated things you'd like to communicate too but i'm just basing this on what you were interested in and so i asked her like what makes mickey feel icky and she used like the icon cons to find something and then what makes donald duck say yuck 
and she found the icons. And then I said, what makes Winnie the Pooh say, ooh? And with that, she couldn't find like an icon that she wanted. And then she suddenly turned on the keyboard function, wrote A-W-E-D. And this is something she'd never done before and actually hasn't done since. Uh, but oh. she just saw this particular opportunity and couldn't pass it up. And her body like willed itself into organization. And she wrote that and was like, okay, well, this is oh. where we're going to start next time. And to be clear for listeners, Megan, um, her non-speaking autism is largely a function of her sensory motor problems. So it's really that she can't organize her body into speech, like her tongue and her yeah. throat into speech. And the same with typing. It's really hard for her to type because of the fine motor impairment. So she has verbal apraxia. So the yeah. apraxia that really affects her motor development in her mouth. Exactly. Okay. But, but and, and yet she's not nonverbal because she's like, she's actually hyperlexical, it turns wow. out. So after that one word came her first poem, which was an amazing poem. It was like, oh, whoa, we have something here. She's not nonverbal. She's actually hyperlexical. Talk about that for just a sec so people yeah, understand like that. Small thing in language, but that means a lot to people like Megana that like nonverbal signals like without language in many ways to people and um so she prefers non-speaking yes because she does she can't speak and it's true she actually says a word like every year or so just like out of the blue it can happen but and so sometimes people prefer minimally speaking but uh they want to distance that from their ability to you understand and then use language because they just use it in a different way and with megana it quickly became clear that she had a huge vocabulary and that she, including words in other languages, yeah, multiple languages. <laughs> and, uh, and so it went from one word to one poem to a chapbook that we published that she co-wrote with her brother, who's also non-speaking. Um, they collaborate exclusively now. I've heard you talk about them. Yeah. I, or I've seen it, articles or something. Yeah. Or- yeah, there's been a lot written about them. Um, they started a nonprofit called the Autism Sibs Universe, the ASU, and they're starting the first neurodiversity-focused co-housing community in Minnesota now. So this is literally in three years, go from only communicating basic needs with icons to starting the first neurodiversity-focused co-housing community in Minnesota. Wow. And you get to use creative energy to draw a lot of this out. To me, poetry, which is seen as such a like a kind of arcane and in many ways alienating form, uh, turns out to be this really basic fundamental kind of tool to help bring lots of writers with autism into expression and to kind of carry what they need to say in the most authentic way possible. And that's one of the great things about poetry is that it's so malleable and that you can work along the lines of form whether it's like you know how are you using repetition how are you structuring stanzas like there's a thing called anaphora which means like when you begin multiple lines with the same word Uh and for people with autism that's actually extremely organizing Mm -hmm. it really helps them like stick with their thoughts and like move forward. So it just turns out that this poetry might be the most like useful practical tool for 
helping these people advocate for what they want in life and make sure other people know their potential. Many parents are not going to be aware that their child has an interest in any of this, correct? And so is that okay? Parents could still contact you all, even if their child shows no interest? Yeah. Well, I mean, unfortunately, we're not given a lot of opportunities to get interested in poetry. Yeah. Um, or we are like when we're extremely young, but then it just kind of disappears or is taught in what I feel like is a really counterproductive way. Um, <laughs> I think that everyone owes it to themselves to discover whether they like poetry or not. And I think that one of the great things about our approach is that regardless of how we're writing, we're always going to start with the what that's important to the student. So, you know, what is it that you love? Let's write about that. And then we try to figure out, if possible, how to make the form resonate with that. So if we can figure out a way to, like, build the poem that has something to do with what you love, no matter how strange it is. or um, <laughs> could be vacuum cleaners, it right? Could. Yeah, well, I, was, I did a teacher training workshop in Arizona a couple of years ago, and uh, I asked if anyone had a, a student with a, a special interest, and this woman raised her hand in the back, and she had this look on her face, and I was just like, oh, no, she's got it. Um, <laughs> and she's like, I've got, I've got the most like idiosyncratic one possible. Right. I have a student who is obsessed with dislocated knees. She dislocated her knee. She's wow. dislocated her knee five times. And whenever she enters a room, the first thing she does is ask everyone if they've ever dislocated anything. Um, okay. It's basically like it's her way of connecting with the world is mm -hmm. through this idea of the dislocated knee. And so I said, great. And her face was like, what? How is that great? <laughs> like, we're going to take 10 minutes as a group and we're going to come up with a poem form that is specific to the dislocated knee. And so we worked together and involved like specifically like the number of dislocations, the five. So it had like five stanzas, right? And in each stanza, there's this moment where the line gets dislocated um, across the page. And then I get, there was one where I, you, I tried to always get like three formal characteristics in a poem to kind of hold it together. But by the end, we had like come up with it in 10 minutes and everyone was like, oh my God, I can't believe that yeah. there's a dislocated knee poem. Um, yeah. And it seems like to me, knowing the people that I know who have ADHD, that that would be one of the funnest activities as well. Like for, I, I mean, I just keep looking at you thinking you and Will have to meet yeah. because I could see him just reveling yeah. in being involved in that activity mm -hmm. in any way, just because of all of the pinging that right. happens. He and his best friend, so much of my experience observing them growing up and his best friend's neurotypical, believe it or not, that's what they did on the playground and everywhere was make up songs and make up yeah. phrases. And so- And I revel in- Patterns. I mean, that's the thing that patterns. I started to kind of focus on because in poetry, the terms that people use are like rules or constraints. There's these very, very negative terms. And I was giving a talk at the Minnesota Autism Conference, and I even and I mentioned in the talk, like I'm frustrated with the terminology around the stuff because I I want it to be a positive thing. And this guy came up to me, um, who's now a friend, and he just he didn't even introduce me. He just said pattern. Okay. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. And it was, that's the positive thing. And that's what, and that's where I definitely think it spills over in all directions with neurodivergence, but also just being human. Like we really 
connect to patterns. We find them meaningful. And it's one of the ways in which we create meaning in our lives is yeah. to seek out patterns. And, um, and that's songs and poems are just full of them. They love yes. patterns and songs and poems. That's, and, and one of the reasons is because we as humans love them. So songs and poems are these compelling ways for us to remember information and to right. share it. Right. Like we all love to sing together. We're all really just like cave people like, <laughs> bonding together, like singing in a cave. And so that's where I think like when I want to make it as simple as possible for someone who th thinks that one, it's a leap to consider someone with who's neurodivergent to have a talent outside of the STEM fields. Right. right. We hear that so often that Ugh. like it's just ingrained in our heads. And then also that um, that poetry might be this like practical use like yeah. to me, those are two leaps and when you put them together it's kind of exponential for parents and teachers and everyone else but when i want to make cut through all of that i say you know poetry is characterized by sensory rich patterned language and yeah. people who are neurodivergent are characterized by sensory rich patterned thought and right. so they just go right together well, you're reminding me of a kid I saw recently who was saying the family was working really hard to get her to stop hand flapping. Mm -hmm. And she kept telling me how agitating that was for her and how she thinks that's the way she thinks. Yeah. She said, when I do that, when I flap my hands, I think my dad is wanting me to not think. Right. Totally. And, and so during the feedback session, of course, I was telling him that mm -hmm. and talking about how important, you know, when in the beginning of my practice, I probably would have been encouraging that child to fit in more because of the fact that that's what I'd been trained around yeah. is that the hand flapping is something that causes disruption and social stigma and all of it. And, and at that right. point I was saying, you know, she's saying she needs it. Right. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's an expression in and of itself, right? Like a pattern yeah. expression. Um, yeah. Can I read a poem? By a yes, do it. And then I think we should, then we, then we should wrap up, but I would love okay. for you to read a poem. And then I want you to quick talk about how families pay for this. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So let's do that. Let's have you read though. I have a student named Adam Walfond who lives in Toronto and he is a non-speaking uh, autist and he wrote this poem that is very much about what you just said, that this okay. idea of like, I, I move to think, like oh, I, wow. movement is about thinking. So he wrote this poem that I love called The Maker of Wanting Space. I want to say that I want to amazing space think about the way I move to think. I game the space the way I open with the body and the way I think, which is the way of water. It touches me open and I am away with really easy feelings of dancing for the answering. Really rare, always rallying, thinking, and it is rare with the way people think. Really way of touching the world is the way I am wanting with my tics. Mm -hmm. I think that I want the way inside questions, opening the want to the wanting way, which thinks openly toward the water. And I am thinking about it all the time, like eating words. <laughs> I am. So, wow, that is so similar to mm -hmm. what 
just right and this is what i love is that like this is where every poem by one of these students is also an act of advocacy where it's like adam is not only like using poetry in the most dynamic and interesting way so that i as a poet get super like excited and inspired but he's also making it legible for people what that is like this desire to both move and think and to have them connected these kids are so lucky to have you in their lives seriously and i know well, you view it really lucky to have them yeah uh, as a poet it's just phenomenal every day when i'm working with one of these students I'm, i can't believe it's my job yeah. How do, oh, so people go to your website, unrestrictedinterest.com, and yeah. how do families afford that? What is the, how does this work? So it depends. Um, we do a lot of one-on-one -on -one and we can, and we either do that in person or um, over distance learning. We use all kinds of different video chat. And that is that they just work with us and, and they can pay for that with us. When it comes to, uh, if families can't afford that, a one-on-one -on -one situation, we always try to work with schools or organizations where they might, you know, get their get their programming. And we've worked with like autism centers. We've worked with, uh, we have this long-standing collaboration with the South Education Center in Richfield and District 287, where we've oh, gotten wow. a of grants to support the programming. We've also taught workshops through the Autism Society of Minnesota and the Center for Engaging autism or it's now communities engaging autism so we love to work one-on-one -on -one and um if if that's not available we also will be creative to help find grants and other other ways to to partner with students that's great that's that's wonderful and um i am so glad you joined me yeah. This is this is awesome. I always talk about you and Mary as these Mary your wife as this creative amazing couple and you're you're really inspiring and so happy to connect with you today. Have a wonderful day, Chris. Thank you so much. It was a really uh, a great pleasure to talk with you again. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining me on my podcast Finding Your Brilliance. My guest today was Chris Martin, who is an award-winning author and co-founder of Unrestricted Interest. You can find out more about Chris at his website, www.unrestrictedinterest.com. Again, thanks for listening to Finding Your Brilliance. And until we meet again, just remember that we each have our own brilliance. Sometimes it just takes a while to find it. Mm -hmm.